Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Florida is the third largest state in America with a population of nearly 20 million people. It's also the state with the highest percentage of residents aged 65 or older. Nearly one in five Floridians is 65 or older, and that number is expected to grow thanks to America's 26 million baby boomers, many of whom are at or near retirement and eyeing the Sunshine State as their next and possibly final destination. So today's guest has his work cut out for him, but something tells me he's up to the challenge. I'm so honored today to welcome Jeff Johnson. He's the state director of AARP Florida. Jeff works in the world of policy, but he also believes that if you really want to change the world, you start by changing hearts. That's the idea behind his side project, the Love Not Fear movement. We're going to talk about all this and more in today's episode. Jeff Johnson, welcome to the show. Jana, thanks very much. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. So are you a Florida native? Tell us a little bit about your background and how you wound up here uh, and how long you've been working with AARP. Sure. So yes, I I grew up, technically I was was born in South Carolina, but from two months on, uh, have been a Floridian, grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, went away for school, but once you get the sand in your shoes, it always (laughs) brings you back. And so I was actually working in sports marketing and came back home to work for the then Tampa Bay Devil Rays. One of my accounts was AARP. They were having a night at the ballpark, and I got to know the staff there. And they said, hey, why don't you come work for a couple of years later? I said, why don't you come work for us? We need an event planner. And I thought, sure, sounds like fun, ready for a real job after working in sports <laughs> for a while. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this will be a good transition, six months, a year, and then I'll go find something else. And that was going on 17 years ago, and oh, wow. I've kind of worked my way through the organization. My my academic background included political science studies, and so it was neat to re-engage that policy part of my brain. Mm-hmm. And it's just continued to be a, a fascinating journey. I, as you said in the open, Florida is the centerpiece of what the nation is facing in terms of the aging of our society and the implications of the longer lifespan that baby boomers are leading and that every subsequent generation is likely to enjoy. And how we address that from a policy standpoint is really critical. So I've been in uh, my entire tenure at ARP has been in the uh, St. Petersburg office, which is one of the three offices that ARP keeps in Florida, and it just continues to be something new and different, um, sometimes terrifying, sometimes thrilling, never boring. I'm sure. For folks who don't know, and I can't imagine there are many who fall into this category, but the AARP is formally known as the American Association of Retired Persons. It was founded in 1958 by a retired high school principal, from what I understand. Jeff, as you mentioned, Florida is really in many ways a microcosm of our aging nation, sort of grappling at warp speed with issues of concern to older Americans. 
That said, what are some of the biggest challenges you see in Florida in dealing with long-term care issues? Sure. Let me let me uh, just mention real quick, and then I'll come to your question. Uh, you're right. Uh, I appreciate the background on AARP. All correct. We quit using the American Association for Retired Persons more than a decade ago, in part because so many of our members are not retired and not mm-hmm. planning to retire. And uh, we've always had this sort of connection to the state of Florida. Our founder was from L.A., and our first office, our national office is in Washington, D.C. to affect policy. But there's always been kind of this pipeline of Florida as a place for people who are looking to reinvent themselves uh, 50s, 60s, and beyond. To your question about what the issues are, I think there's federal issues, there's state issues, there's right. local issues. And uh, we can talk about each of those. Let me uh, hit the state first, okay. since you mentioned that, and then we can talk about the others. For most people probably listening to your podcast, they may well be aware that if you need help, if you need long-term supports and services, long-term care, that the primary payer in Florida and most states is Medicaid, that generally people will spend whatever resources they've saved for retirement pretty quickly, particularly if they need institutional nursing home care, but even if they need ALF care. And then uh, Medicaid is the most likely source of paying for long-term care. So when there are federal and state discussions about the future of Medicaid, well, people tend to think about low-income families, mothers, fathers, and children, the bulk of Medicaid dollars tends to actually go into long-term care. And so from our perspective in Florida at ARP, we're really focused on what happens to the Medicaid long-term care program, which has been through some pretty significant changes here in the state over the last few years. And in addition to that, the state has some programs, some funds set aside for people who don't qualify for Medicaid, but do need help that they can't afford themselves, particularly with a focus on keeping people at home, which Mm -hmm. quite honestly is what just about everybody wants, and not only for themselves and for their family members, but frankly, as taxpayers, it's a more efficient use Mm -hmm. of funds. So we're Mm -hmm. always trying to, Florida is not very good at the balance between nursing home care and at-home care. And one of the driving principles, I guess, that ARP takes to Tallahassee is how can we shift that balance so we can help more people stay at home? Mm -hmm. And we should clarify for the listeners that Tallahassee is where the legislature lives and works in Tallahassee, Florida. I know that in the 2016 legislative session, Floridians age 50 and up scored some big wins, but there was also a big shortfall in the area of caregiver support for frail and disabled people. According to the Department of Elder Affairs, uh, over 6,500 people died during the 2014 to 2015 fiscal year while they were on a state waiting list for at least one of four services that help families keep their loved ones in their homes or in their communities. Um, Among those uh, programs are Medicaid-managed long-term care, home care for the elderly, and community care for the elderly. That's kind of a grim picture, and as you mentioned, the state of Florida needs to balance that out a little bit better between Medicaid and home care, I believe you mentioned. What's What's the situation now? Sure. So in the Medicaid program, for those who qualify for Medicaid, the entitlement, if you will, uh, is nursing home care. And so if you have a loved one who is qualified for Medicaid, both in terms of their frailty and in terms of their financial status, they can go to a nursing home. It may not be the nursing home you want, may not be a nursing home close to you, but they can get into a nursing home. And the challenge is that most people would rather not do that. And again, it's, it's less expensive to all involved 
if people can find ways to stay at home. The legislature this year increased the funding for home and community-based services by a modest amount, but significant, a few million dollars. Mm -hmm. But as you pointed out, the wait list is somewhere around 60,000 people for home-based care, home and community-based care, whether it's regardless of those programs. And that's that doesn't double count people who have applied to multiple programs. Uh-huh. And that multi-million dollar increase in the last legislative session took care of a few hundred, maybe a couple thousand, but nowhere near making a dent in that 60,000 at a time when, because of the demographics of the state, we expect that number of people in need to grow. It's not a flat number. Mm-hmm. So this legislative session and Florida's legislative session this year, most years, is from March to May. So they're just beginning to prepare for it now. What they've been told by the people who estimate what tax revenues are likely to be in the next fiscal year is that we'll have less money, not more, in 2017, 2018. And so as they look to balance all of the needs that Florida has, not only, of course, long-term care, but education and prisons and, you know, roads and everything that the state spends money on, they've got to figure out how to cut money, um, not add to, at a time that we and others who are deeply concerned about the fate of those who are older and and need help are banging the drum to say, look, a 60,000-person waiting list isn't acceptable, and it is costing people their lives. So it is a really difficult situation in Tallahassee uh, with the Florida legislature. Certainly would encourage all your listeners that if this is an important issue for them, that they make sure that their legislators know about it. And, uh, Janet, there's one other piece on that state level that I think is really important touches on the federal one. There's been a lot of discussion in D.C. just in these early days of the new administration that Medicaid may change its nature from being the the program it is today, which is a federally funded and state funded shared responsibility between those two entities into a uh, what's called a block grant, mm-hmm. where the federal government gives each state a certain amount of money to go do what it feels is is in the best interests of its citizens. And the state of Florida, even before that becomes uh, legislative truth, is already thinking about, so what would we want in a block grant? And those questions are just now being asked and those answers are being formulated, particularly in the Florida Senate, though I suspect the Florida House and, and the governor will weigh in as well. We think it's really important that we maintain the the importance of Medicaid as that backstop funder of long-term care, and hopefully in a way that, first of all, doesn't leave more people on a waiting list, and second of all, is able to help more people stay at home where they want to be. Mm -hmm. Jeff, where is the money going? How is it being dispersed? And what amount is distributed to long-term care and folks who need help? Sure. I would say, I guess, A, it's complicated. B, Two major streams. So there are what's called general funds. These are programs that are funded straight from the state government. They don't involve any sort of federal match. Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. sent through the area agencies on aging. So the area agency on aging that you all have in Palm Beach and Treasure Coast, for instance, who then disperses it to lead agencies. And that's for home care for the elderly, community care for the elderly, those sorts of general revenue programs. The much bigger stream, frankly, is uh, Medicaid, and that's one where there is federal money and state money involved. All of that money goes through managed care companies, a 
several years ago, the state of Florida decided that in order to hopefully bend the cost curve in not only the long term, but also the acute care, like regular health care parts of Medicaid, they would employ a system in which people who qualify for Medicaid sign up for a managed care company and the managed care company then helps them get the care that they need. And so uh, if you've got somebody in, let's say, Palm Beach County who needs nursing home level care, they qualify for Medicaid, they would have to choose between a couple of different managed care companies who then would work with them to figure out, can we keep you at home? Do we need to put you into nursing home care? And that's a new, relatively new system. It's only been in place for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, The results are mixed as to whether that's saving money. We've heard anecdotes of people who've been kind of fallen through the cracks of the system, but so far they've been anecdotes. We haven't seen uh, huge trends in one direction or another about whether that is working or not. Mm -hmm. The major Medicaid overhaul that you referred to earlier was, to some extent, uh, outlined in the uh, first of two committee hearings with uh, Tom Price, who is the Republican from Georgia, who has been nominated to head the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. He, in fact, declined to endorse Trump's pledge to curb drug prices in Medicare and Medicaid by negotiating with pharmaceutical firms in his hearing. He said he favors repealing the ACA and its Medicaid expansion, and he supports a major Medicaid change requiring able-bodied people to be in work activities to qualify for benefits. It is modeled on the plan that was put in place in Indiana, from what I can see. If confirmed, how are older Floridians likely to fare under this uh, nominee, if he gets confirmed, based on what he said? Well, it's a good question, and it's one that I think um, none of us can you know, fully know the answer to and until it happens. Yeah. What I would say is our impression is that President Trump has pulled together a cabinet that have very strong views on the different issues that they focus on, some of which may or may not align with his own. And so it's pretty complicated, not only complicated, but it's yet to be determined who will actually drive the agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, President Trump has said on the campaign trail that, for instance, on Medicare, he is not interested in pursuing any changes. And Mr. Price has expressed some interest in changing Medicare from a program that has a defined benefit package to one in which those 65 and over are given a voucher, basically. They're given money with which to buy services on the private market. And there's some congressional support for that, particularly in the House. We'll see whether what President Trump has said becomes the agenda or whether what the House and um, what potential Secretary, Secretary Designate Price has advocated in the past becomes the agenda. So on Medicare, that's a huge issue. On Medicaid, we have seen kind of interest across the board in pursuing a block grant strategy. And I think from ARP's perspective, it's important that lawmakers, first of all, recognize the impact that Medicaid has on long-term care. Because again, I would argue that unless you are somebody who has been through this as a family member, as a caregiver, you probably think of Medicaid not as a program for those who are frail and older. And then on the Affordable Care Act, I know that there's obviously significant energy 
and on all parties with majorities at this point, House, Senate, and, and the administration, to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And, and I would say from ARP's perspective, it's really critical that whatever happens to health care, that's the gains that the Affordable Care Act won for those 50 to 64 not be rescinded. So, for instance, the fact that insurers cannot deny you coverage just because you have a pre-existing right. condition or they can't charge you five times, seven times more just based on your age mm-hmm. were significant pieces to us. And then the other point that you raised, which I think is going to be very interesting to see, is President Trump has said in several settings that he wants to tackle drug prices through the use of bulk negotiation, which, of course, the Veterans Administration does. Most other countries' health systems do. Currently, Medicare and Medicaid at the federal level are banned from doing that. And frankly, that's a change that we think makes a lot of sense because prescription drug coverage and prescription drug prices are significant out-of-pocket expense for even people with really good Medicare coverage or, or coverage under Medicaid. So all that said, there's a lot to watch this year. And if you are interested in these issues, it is a really good time to raise your voice, not only with your state legislators, but with your members of Congress and senators as well. Mm-hmm. If we can go back for a minute to caregivers, um, focus on sure. them for a minute. Um, I know that it, at least as far as I've seen, the latest statistics show that there's 2.67 million unpaid family caregivers in Florida for a total economic value of $29.7 billion. Can you speak for a moment to the specific legislation, if there is any, that AARP is trying to move forward that would ease the burden for family caregivers? Yeah, there's some, obviously, we look at all of the home and community-based long-term care, really all of long-term care, as being relevant to caregivers Mm-hmm. because they're bearing the brunt of taking care of usually parents or spouses or other uh, family members or friends. The, at the federal level, there is an initiative called the RAISE Act, which mm-hmm. is focused on getting federal entities to think through the implications of policy for family caregivers. And it's modeled on a, a similar act that was really instrumental in getting the government to think about the impact for uh, those with Alzheimer's. Yeah, It's been criticized as not having a, a lot of teeth to it. I mean, I think there are people who what they would really like to see is the ability to reimburse or pay family members for the care of their loved ones. There are some states that have walked down that road, and I think that there's a, a really strong policy argument for it. I don't know that I see that on the horizon in Congress this year, and I would say at the state level the same is true. One of the things that ARP is focused on at the federal level and certainly looking at uh, opportunities for on the state level is to ensure that people who have to take time away from work in order to um, care for again, aging parents or spouses, have the ability to take leave for that because caregiving leave is something that has evolved over time around children but has, for many employers, not even popped up on the radar for caregiving of elders. And I think that as we go forward in this new demographic world, that's going to be a reality that employers deal with one way or the other, whether it's through government regulation or whether it's through smart employers understanding that to keep their best and brightest, they need to be able to accommodate this new family dynamic. That's a change that's going to have to happen. 
Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what the status of the CARE Act in Florida is, the Caregiver Advise, Record, Enable Act, which would allow hospital patients to designate a family caregiver and other <laughs> things? Can you? I'm, yeah. I'm just really shocked that this is so basic and it's really not, not very widespread in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. The CARE Act is a, a state-level um, piece of legislation that AARP has been promoting in states around the country, and it's gotten picked up um, gradually, I guess, in a range of states that d- basically outlines uh, the role of a hospital in making sure that family caregivers have the information they need in order to make the transition home a successful one. And the interesting thing, maybe the frustrating thing for some about Florida, is that virtually everything that has been in the AARP, I guess, model bill of the CARE Act already exists in Florida in rules that the Agency for Healthcare Administration, Department of Health, that state agencies have promulgated. Mm -hmm. So a law isn't necessarily going to change the reality in Florida the way that it might in in Oklahoma Mm -hmm. or New Jersey. What needs to happen is really more in-depth and disciplined look at how those rules get applied and what actually happens. Mm -hmm. And I think from ARP Florida's perspective, from our perspective, rather than work on the legislative piece that we don't have confidence is going to change the dynamic. We're trying to figure out how do we make sure that enforcement is done in a way that puts hospitals in the position that the CARE Act has been uh, set up to do, which is as an educator and as uh, an institution that provides support for the family caregiver. There's probably some examples out there of hospitals that do it well, and I think Mm -hmm. that there's there's a sense just from asking people that the norm is that they don't really do that per se. And there are some people who would argue that while certainly the hospital is where you find somebody who is frail at their most critical point, there may be other institutions that ought to be involved too. Mm -hmm. And so we've tried to figure out at the same time, again, less on a policy perspective and more on a programmatic perspective, where are there successful coalitions of caregiver support groups that can try to reach everybody with the sort of information that they need? And there are a couple places out there that do a pretty good job of it, but not many. And so we've tried to uh, identify who some of the main players are in making those things happen and try to spark that to happen. In Jacksonville, it's a hospice that actually has been the driving force behind a caregiver coalition. In Orlando, it's a service agency that's been really sort of leading the way. And in a lot of places, it's really not much of anybody. It doesn't exist. So you have all these people who have a piece of the puzzle, and there's no overall framework for bringing them together. Uh So that's, uh, from my position, I'd rather focus our energies on trying to figure out how to make those uh, pieces connect than pushing through a CARE Act that our legislative folks actually duplicates what's already in, in state rule and just isn't really implemented. Mm-hmm. Makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Jeff, have you had personal experience of these issues in your own family? Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> to some degree. Though I would, I as is unfortunately too often the stereotype, I can only take so much of that experience because I have older sisters, uh-huh. and um, generally it's the old, <laughs> in our case, it's the eldest sister who has done the most of this. But yes, my parents, uh, my father passed away at 
94, mm-hmm. and uh, my mother is in her mid-90s. I'm not allowed to say how old she actually is. <laughs> but so, yes, working through the process of, you know, transitioning from the home where they raised five kids to an assisted living facility and certainly the health conditions that go along with that as well as the financial yeah, all of that stuff. Uh, it, what's fascinating to me, and I've talked about this with colleagues too, is it doesn't matter how long you have worked on this professionally, mm-hmm. it still is completely out of the blue when it hits you yeah. and, and personally. Yeah. And I think while I was sympathetic before going through the experiences I have, there's a difference between, I guess, sympathy and empathy maybe. You know, having felt it in your own life changes your perspective. Mm -hmm. Do you think it influences the way that you approach your work? Yeah, I mean, I like to think that I was uh, pretty passionate about this stuff before, but Mm -hmm. it does. It changes your perspective. And one of the things that I've found interesting is when we talk with legislators, and this is true as long as I've been at ARP, it doesn't matter where they are in the political spectrum as much as it matters whether they've gone through this experience. We've seen some of the most small government, conservative-minded folks who, when you raise the issue of nursing home quality, cannot talk enough about how important it is because they had a mother who had a horrible experience in a nursing home mm-hmm. that was understaffed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it works across the spectrum that way. At the same time, when you talk with somebody who's not had this touch their life, um, it doesn't matter where they all are on the political spectrum. They don't feel it as acutely, I don't think, as when they know somebody who's been through it and then when they've been through it. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is, I think Rosalind Carter said that everyone either has been a caregiver, will be a caregiver, or is a caregiver at some point at their life. And as we know, there are, what, 44 million unpaid family caregivers in the United States. It touches everyone, whether or not, you know, we want to acknowledge it. You know, I think that's right. And it, it seems to me like one of the issues that we face as a society, and this is not necessarily a government policy one, mm-hmm. is that when you have a child there's a lot of structure there. I mean, there are books and there are classes and there are support groups and all of those sorts of things. And people kind of know it. Generally speaking, you know, people kind of know when you're, when you're about to have a child. Mm-hmm. When you're taking care of an aging parent, there are some significant differences. I'm not going to say it's exactly the same, but there's a whole lot less in terms of support and structure and cultural awareness. And there is constantly the feeling that we hear when we talk with people who are in the midst of family caregiving is the feeling of being alone. Um, It's a very isolating experience because all of your free time gets sucked into caregiving, or at least it can, and you don't feel like anybody else is going through the same thing. It's it's not a topic that comes up first when you get together for coffee or you know meet somebody at a uh, you know house of worship or something like that. When it does come up, we host events, ARP has hosted events that are just, we call them careversations, but basically just conversations among caregivers. And just the very act of recognizing that there are other people who are going through some of the same challenges of, of juggling all these elements of life is itself a huge form of medicine, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out as a society how to make it easier for people to bridge that gap and not feel isolated in in caregiving. And I think that's a challenge that we need to think about, again, not solely from a public policy perspective, but also just kind of how we build our, our communities. Right. And to that point, what's your take on why the U.S. is so far behind the rest of the world in terms of attention to aging issues? 
Hmm, good question. Um, I think that there's some cultural elements that we have, and I, you know, I'm not a cross-cultural anthropologist, so I can't really say for sure. But my impression is that the family ties in America, in some parts of our population, are perhaps a little weaker than others. I think in other cultures, mm-hmm. I think that there is a cultural value here on youth, which is very strong, to the detriment of a cultural value on aging. There are some generally more traditional cultures that value the wisdom of elders, and we have tended not to do that in many ways. When you look at what's on TV or in the news or in the magazines, we tend to focus on young, active, vibrant people. And even when we talk about positive stories of aging, they tend to be older people who act like young, vibrant, Uh (laughs) 20-something. And that's, that's not bad in and of itself, but it can reinforce the thought that if you're not that, then we don't want to see you and we don't want to talk to you. And then when you add to that the fact that we're a pretty mobile society and so you've got a lot of people whose parents are, you know, a couple time zones and a thousand miles away, it's a different reality. And I do think that when you compare the way we don't address aging to the way that other cultures address and value aging, it's a pretty significant difference. I'll say. Particularly those views of older folks who, as you said, behave like younger people, gives the impression that you have to act like a younger person in order to be valuable or even get attention. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, it's interesting because our ARP's uh, chief executive officer, Joanne Jenkins, ha- wrote a book last year called Disrupt Aging. Right. And her whole mantra is, and our organization's mantra is we need to find ways to disrupt that model of we don't really want to talk about aging. We only want to talk about people who are young or else act really young. We, it, all for celebrating the 105-year-old who runs a marathon. Right. You know, that's a great thing. But the 105-year-old who gets up every day and is a source of love and wisdom for his or her family is equally valuable. We need to find ways to to make that an acceptable part of the stories we tell each other about what this country is. Mm -hmm. I think that in the world of dementia, there are folks who are working to change that impression too, is that we don't just talk about this in terms of folks who have dementia as as being a a crisis. There are folks who are living well with dementia and who are creative and who are contributing along those same lines. You just made me think of that. Really Um, good point, yeah. How do you define an age-friendly city, and which are the most age-friendly cities in Florida? (laughs) That's a trick question. The (laughs) ARP actually has been working with the World Health Organization for the last several years on a network of communities that want to be age-friendly. So this isn't necessarily uh, an award that you achieve by hitting certain milestones. It's kind of like the first step in a 12-step program. It's admitting Mm -hmm. you have a problem (laughs) and wanting to try to do better at it. Not always with a problem. Sometimes it's a, we think we're doing stuff really well, but we always want to do better. And so this age-friendly network has been growing really rapidly over the last year or so. Last year, we started with three communities. We're up to about 13. Sarasota County was the first to join. Tallahassee and Winter Haven were the first two cities to join. There are several in uh, Broward County. Hallandale Beach was the first. Fort Lauderdale uh, just joined. And they're kind of coming in so rapidly right now that we're, you know, uh, that I lose track. But to your question, those are the communities whose government, nonprofit, 
philanthropic, academic, for-profit folks have all recognized this is an important thing for us to work on. And a lot of them have great stories to tell about ways that they can be walkable, ways that they keep people engaged in work and volunteering to the extent that they want to be, ways that the fun things to do in that community appeal to all generations and not just one generation, housing that works for people of all ages, support services that work for people of all ages. Nobody's perfect, i got to tell you. I just saw today... Florida got named the best place to retire by somebody, and certainly that is our history, and it will continue to be, I suspect, what people think of with Florida. But the reality is Florida's communities all have places where they know we don't do this part well, mostly around transportation, quite honestly. It's somewhat about housing. But for those who who really want to get to the answer to the question you actually asked rather than the one I just answered, there is an ARP livability index that our Public Policy Institute put together. We use seven different dimensions or uh, elements of of what it means to be a a great community to live in. It'll actually go down to your neighborhood level. So you can compare your neighborhood to another one in your same town, or you can compare, you know, where you are now to where your best friend lives, so you can talk them. It's a pretty comprehensive look that uses nationwide data, and it puts it on a scale of, I think, zero to 100, but the highest ranking city is about a 78, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and in Florida, we're generally right in the middle. I mean, we're generally in the 50s and do well on some of the measures, depending on the community, around, say, civic engagement and environment, but not so well on things like transportation. And housing is kind of a mixed bag, too. Yeah, and long-term care. I'm going to have to just throw yeah. that in there. Um, no, it's true. This- it's true, and we have, you know, we have some really dedicated folks here working on long-term care, the folks who work in the area agencies and the direct service agencies that mm-hmm. they work with, but it's not enough. And one of the things that I found really interesting, we tend to separate in our minds for-profit and not-for-profit. I've seen a lot of people in for-profit home health agencies who really have a mission-driven mindset, and I think that that's, that's encouraging because yeah. I don't I mean, I think it takes us, again, as a whole community to really tackle this in order to to make this a successful place to live, mm-hmm. regardless of age. Here's the other thing I think that Florida has as a challenge, I'll just kind of throw out there. Because so many people came here from somewhere else as an extension of their vacation. You know, mm-hmm. people vacation in Florida, they loved it, they got a condo for to snowbird for a little while, and then they realized they might as well just be down here the whole time. We didn't enter this place, many people, thinking that this was our home, that this was our community. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to not build the social connections that you do back home. And so on the West Coast, tends to be people from, you know, the Big Ten area. On the East Coast, tends to be people from New York, Boston. But they don't think of Boca Raton as their home in the same way that they thought of Boston as their Hmm, home. That's an interesting point. Yeah. yeah and, and so because you don't, and certainly there are exceptions, if you don't go into it with that mindset, when you go on vacation, you don't go out of your way to meet the neighbor in the room next to you or in the, the unit next to you. And the same can be true here. And what happens is, particularly if you come down as family or you come down with a couple friends, the last one standing, once others pass away, is terribly isolated. They haven't been giving back to that community as a volunteer or donor or whatever nor do they have the weak ties that they need of people that are not relatives but are able to look out for them that they need in order to really help them through the trials that that can come. Mm -hmm. Well, before we move on to your Love Not Fear project, what do you want people to know about AARP that they might not know? And where can people learn more about AARP's work in Florida? 
Well, thanks. The I think a lot of people think of AARP based on the magazine that they get in their mailbox if they're an AARP member or the you know, frequent requests to join if they're not yet a member. And the service providers that we work with, like United Healthcare and New York Life and those who provide products and services for ARP members. Some people know the story that you told about how ARP is an active voice in Washington and in state capitals trying to uh, make life better for all of us as we age. What I would say, what would be great is, if your listeners knew, is that we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. It doesn't have a, a PAC, doesn't endorse candidates. And our ability to advocate is really resting solely on the shoulders of our members and their willingness to be active. They can go to our Facebook page, ARP Florida Facebook page. They can go to uh, ARP.org slash Florida, uh, which is our state um, website as part of our our national website. And anything that they can do to be engaged as members increases our ability to, to advocate for all. And again, it's advocacy as well as those programmatic components that we talk about that are really about how we make life better um, in your community for you as an individual as well as from a policy perspective. Okay. So let's move on to the Love Not Fear Project. Our new president seems determined to exploit the fears of everyday Americans, whether it's fear of someone, the other, or fear of something that has yet to happen, terrorism, crime, you name it. In his inaugural address, there were no calls for unity or attempts to bridge the political divide. Far from it, it was a battle cry, mirroring all the doomsday themes of his campaign. Yet, after last weekend's affirmative and peaceful Women's March on Washington and D.C. and the hundreds of sister rallies that took place all around the world, the Love Not Fear message seems especially relevant. Tell us about the Love Not Fear project, Jeff, why you started it, and what it's all about. Well, sure. I appreciate uh, you asking, Jenna. And it, you've made this clear, but I'll underscore, has nothing to do with uh, AARP and uh, is kind of a side project that I've picked up. And it's really been, um, over the last year, recognizing that we live in a culture where fear is the lever people pull in order to make us do things, whether it's to buy a product or vote for a candidate or support a cause. And while maybe we're biologically wired for that to be perhaps the most effective trigger, there is a tragedy that occurs when everybody goes to that well first and foremost. And a lot of that tragedy is the separation it causes uh, amongst ourselves. The division in this country is partly because we're scared of each other. The fact that we have created a technological world in which we have a feed that reinforces us with our own messages, the filter bubbles, they call it, mm-hmm. is, um, is an element. But even more than that, all of them survive. They get the clicks or the um, purchases or whatever by scaring the bejabbers out of you. That can leave people in a state of anxiety and, and fear. And we'll never be the country that we want to be or the community that we want to be if we stay in that realm. And so uh, about a year ago, I this dawned on me. It's not so much an idea I had. It's an idea that grabbed me. And so I just started to raise, you know, what's the alternative look like? And um, what the alternative looks like is, first of all, trying to be intentional about what we feed ourselves. 
not in food and drink necessarily, but in terms of the media that we take in, whether it be social media or TV or radio or uh, podcasts like this. So are we intentional about giving ourselves a balanced diet? Are we intentional about recognizing that most of the news is not deep and dark, that American carnage is not the uh, everyday existence of most people most of the time. And if we only feed ourselves the negative, if we only look at the crime statistics, if we only look at the horror stories that do occur and that are real, then we ignore our own mental health because our subconscious will recognize that as our reality and, and will try to drive us into a position where we're either running or fighting based on fear. So Love Not Fear movement still very much in its infancy, still trying to figure out who's interested in this. Mm-hmm. Who said, this is a big deal, this is something we need to do something about, and then what is the something we can do? And the some things that we can do are to spread information about how you can grow your muscles of empathy. I mentioned empathy earlier, and the reality is we'll never overcome division, we'll never overcome fear if we're scared of the other, whether the other is a Syrian refugee or a Trump voter. Unless we can learn to understand each other, we'll always be afraid of each other. And if we don't also learn to balance our social and regular media feeds with positive messages that reflect a reality that counters the negative messages that may also reflect a reality, then we'll never be in a position to, to take those steps forward. And I guess the final thing is we got to uh, physically come together. I mean, you can I mentioned isolation for uh, people who've relocated here, but it's true for anybody. It's easy to get locked in behind your computer screen or your smartphone and live an existence that doesn't bring you encounter encounters with people who are different from you in a positive way. And we need to figure out how to encourage that to happen or else the world can be a very scary place if we let it. But we have the power to change that. And that's what the Love Not Fear movement is trying to encourage people to do. Mm -hmm. I asked you this question in the context of our conversation about AARP. So I want to ask the same question in the context of the Love Not Fear project. Have you had personal experience of folks who don't think like you, who don't act like you? And what do you do when you encounter someone whose views are very different from yours? Have you had an experience of that? And how did you handle it? Yeah, it's I. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> so the uh, and politically, I um, I'm so grateful to work for a nonpartisan organization because I don't really identify with either political party. Mm-hmm. So I get the opportunity to meet people who don't think like I do a lot in the political realm, from a uh, faith-based realm and from a from a community-based realm. To meet with people of different cultures has been a, a great fortune as well. We've had folks actually working for us in our, our little ARP Florida State office who are Muslim, who are immigrants from other countries, who are atheists, who are believers of all sorts of stripes. And to be able to move beyond the lowest common denominator, don't talk about religion, don't talk about culture mindset, to one of genuine curiosity has been really invigorating. I've learned a lot from asking people with whom I have a trusting relationship and who have a trusting relationship with me more about their culture and where they come from. And I've come to be able to appreciate them better as a result. We get taught, at least I got taught fairly early on, that in a multicultural world, the right thing to do was not to ask questions about stuff like that and to only focus on kind of the bland middle. Mm -hmm. And I think that that does us a disservice because the fact of the matter is we are all 
creatures of our culture. It's not determinist, but it certainly plays a role in who we are. And we'll understand each other better if we understand where we're coming from. I've had some great dialogues with people. Again, it's people that you've gotten to know, or people I've gotten to know, on issues where we have very, very strong uh, differences of opinions. But because it's within the context of a relationship of mutual respect, we've actually been able to kind of understand why somebody else thinks so differently than I do. And once you do that, I mean, so much of what we see right now, and right now is a very political time, a time of great political upheaval, is people on all sides, quite candidly, demonizing the others. And once you realize that those people on the other side, they're people who at their heart are just like you, but because of the inputs that they've received from culture and because of who they are as an individual, they just think differently than you. Once you can try to understand them from that mindset, it's a little harder to demonize them. And it's a lot easier to get to a constructive place of dialogue. Well, I think I'm a positive person. I think you are too. I do not see this moment in history as a crisis. I see it as an opportunity. I think sometimes we take love for granted in the way that maybe we took for granted that by electing a black president, we were past the hate of the past. Um, I think this has been a wake-up call, and I see this as an opportunity. So I'm with you on this. How can folks get involved with this project, the Love Not Fear project? There is a Facebook page, Love Not Fear Movement Facebook page, which I think is facebook.com slash Love Not Fear Movement. And we try to put out regular messages there, too. There's a message button on there or a contact us button, and would love it if people were willing to send us a message that way. If you're not a Facebook person, lovenotfearmovement at gmail.com will get to me. Let me make sure there are no illusions. This is not some vast organization. This is a couple of us who are on our own time trying to figure out how to make this into something. And we would certainly love the support of you and any of your listeners who want to help make it into something as well. Great. And we again want to make clear to the listeners that the Love Not Fear Project is a part and aside from Jeff's work with AARP. These are two separate entities, and uh, we want to make sure that folks just understand that he speaks um, on behalf of each of them separately. Jeff, is there anything that we left out that you'd like to add? Any last thoughts that you have? Gosh, I can't think of any. It's <laughs> been a wonderful. I mean, it's been a wonderful conversation. I, I really appreciate you being able to uh, be a part of this. I'm thankful for the work that you're doing and the stories that you're telling. Obviously, not so much mine as the others have been, I think, richly rewarding for people. And I just hope that you'll continue to do that. Continue to tell the stories of all of us who are looking to age wisely. Thank you. Before we go quickly, I have one last question. How's your mom doing? <laughs> She's doing well. Thank you. You know, apparently when you get to be in your 90s, you know, if there's that always lucky. health issues. <laughs> but I was talking on the phone the other day. She said, I, you better watch out. I'm back at it. And uh, she's thriving where she is. And uh, we're thankful for that. That's awesome. Jeff Johnson, he's the state director of AARP Florida. And he's the founder of the Love Not Fear movement. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I am so honored to have had you on the show. Thank you again. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. 
And we'd love to know what you want to hear more of. You can email me at Jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says. The Agewise podcast is distributed nationally on the Speak Up Talk radio network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Yours.